0: So this is Alan Condon with the Becker's ASC podcast, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by André Blom, CEO of Illinois Bone and Joint Institute. André, before we dive into some few questions today, I'd love to turn the floor to you to, to hear more about, obviously, your role, your background, and of course, Illinois Bone and Joint Institute as well.
1: Sure. Uh, thanks, Alan, for having me, and, and it's always good to talk to the Becker's uh, crew and and. Appreciate everything you guys do for uh, pushing information out there. Um, a little bit of background um, on myself, I'm the Chief Executive Officer for uh, Illinois Bon & Joint Institute. We're a practice um, in the Chicagoland area. Uh, we've got about 160 physicians. Uh, we have a divisional model, meaning we've got about um, six or seven regions that are pretty independently governed, but we come together under an umbrella uh, with a lot of uh, business verticals that align um, I've been with IBGI for about 20 years and uh, sort of worked my way through uh, different levels of the organization. And I'm, I'm blessed to uh, be in the position I am right now uh, with the group. We've got about uh, 2,200 employees in uh, 47 offices, and uh, we're pretty much in a musculoskeletal enterprise. Uh, we've got rheumatology, pain management, pain um, management. Uh, other services, including ortho health and <clears throat> and some health coaching and related items, but that that's the general background of the organization. It's about it's about 30 uh, 30 years old and uh, governed exclusively by physicians and uh, complete uh, completely independent autonomous private practice.
0: Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for that brief background, Andre. A little bit of background here. I'm actually quite familiar with Illinois Bone and Joint Institute myself. Uh, visited them for the first time in 2020 with my first uh, leg fracture, unfortunately, but was very, very impressed with uh, the level of care I was provided throughout, throughout the way. So delighted to get to speak to today and dive a little bit deeper into the goings on at uh, IBJI.: So uh, to kick things off, Andre, what are the two to three most interesting trends that you're following in healthcare today?
1: Um, you know, we're keeping a close eye on on where things are going post COVID, and um, I think you have to be very realistic about the um, the direction that various elements, such as policy changes, uh, the inflationary pressure we face, which we haven't really accounted for about fifteen to eighteen years, um, what effect that's having um, on our industry as a whole. Um, And I think sometimes you can get self-absorbed and and think about the effect that it has on you, but we we try to begin with what's the effect that it has on the patient. You know, um, how are they viewing the world? What are their access points? How can we help them um, navigate what is potentially a difficult environment for them, uh, both financially and medically? Um, And so that's one of the things we're just trying to pay attention to. And we We work in in such varied settings, uh, from a hospital based trauma uh, sector to all the way complete independent um, you know practice to remote therapy care and things like that that we try to look at a lot of different things at the same point in time, and then we try and always uh, test that against what the mandates and the direction strategically from our board um, has been over the last two to three years. And so, um, I wouldn't say we're focused on one thing in particular, but at any given point in time, uh, four or five different items um, is always at play. I, I think top of mind for us ra- right now is the notion of um, location of services and the appropriateness of care. Um, and so that's, that's an important factor for us. And then second of all is, is really what's gonna happen to value-based care in the future. We've been quite successful for the last six, seven years in, um, in that realm. And pivoting to the commercial aspect of that has been uh, good and successful for us, and more of a direct partnership with the patient and the payer. Um, but it'll be interesting to see where the federal government goes in 2024 and and where they're going to put some of these risk elements that they that they keep talking about. So those are the things we're primarily focused on.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, gotcha. Certainly a lot going on there to impact. But th- just to follow up on the value-based care aspect. Like, what would you say is the, for other orthopedic independent practices similar to yourself, what would you say is the biggest challenge at the moment in terms of really finding that success in terms of those uh, value-based commercial um, uh, models?
1: Um, yeah, that's a great question. I think value-based medicine became sort of a garbage term three to four years into the federal programs, and, and people were struggling to define what that is. I mean, ultimately, value is what the patient adjudicates it to be, and um, and so as we uh, pivot from uh, Medicare, which was largely retrospective and uh, reconciliatory in nature, and we move more to a prospective um, payer uh, system where the bigger decision is not just management of all the transitions of care, but also what level of risk are you willing to take on board? That, that's the biggest difference uh, with the commercials. I think on the federal side, um, uh, the BBCI advanced program hasn't really helped themselves by making it extremely complicated. And I think they've lost a lot of constituents and participants, which is unfortunate um, uh, given the fact that we were creating some really good momentum there. And so larger organizations where you have volume that can carry success um, have obviously continued. And I, I think the future on the federal side will be working closely with health systems and hospitals to to really wrap your hands around um, both the target pricing element of value-based medicine, et cetera. On the commercial side, I think it's a lot more dynamic because we have to aggressively incorporate items like uh, remote care, remote monitoring. Um, the, the time frame that we're involved with the patients a little bit different than on the federal side. Uh, the risk stratification that that all of the insurance companies and payers push at us is is very different. I mean. 100 percent of, of IBGIs, total knees, total hips, um, uh, and probably 80 percent of our spine cases are all in a risk-bearing program. So I wouldn't say we're comfortable with it, but I, I think it's advantageous for our physicians that they've got five to six years under their belt of experience uh, with how to pivot. We've got a, a good team. We've got some good technology around that. Um, but but those are two very divergent approaches between federal and commercial, uh, and I think as Medicare Advantage becomes more of a factor, um, you know, we'll have to pay attention to to what's going to happen there as well.
0: Yeah, certainly interested to pay, pay attention to the value-based care realm. And, and I'm wondering, like you said at the top of the top of the podcast, in terms of inflation, obviously independent practice also dealing with rising costs, declining reimbursements mm. on the Medicare side. Do you think? Do you anticipate more in the independent practices will start dipping their toes in the in the world of value-based care? Um, with all these kind of trends?
1: Uh, I, I don't at the moment. Um, I think what will happen, what will have to happen is that the environment for them to participate will have to be uh, unique in the sense that, uh, look, it, it, it's important to, to play in that sandbox. I mean, it took us, we probably invested about $750,000 in, back in 2014 um, in order to be successful for the next six or seven years. And obviously, we've gone to version 2.0, 3.0, and a lot of other iterations. It's very hard for independent practices to, you know, to put that kind of money on the table um, without a known return and a high risk uh, level for a good 18 to 24 months. Once you get going, it's good. But I I think there's two options. I think private practices either have to coalesce and work together in more sort of a management structure or a management service organization structure that focuses just on that. Well, the payers themselves have to recognize um, what the true triggers of success are and, and really reward that and maybe incentivize it a little bit different, a um, little bit akin to maybe the meaningful use uh, EMR uh, dollars that the practices received back in the day to pivot on the EHR side. We're in a little bit of the same box. The concern I have is that if, if a lot of these risk-based products get aligned with um, larger systems and hospital-based systems that are significantly more top heavy than, than I think private practices, then, uh, the true value-based components going to get lost because they're responsible for so much more than just MSK. You know, they've got cardiology, they've got oncology, they've got a lot of other sort of chronic disease states, whereas we take care more of events, um, with, within a life. And so it's, it's sort of different, it's a different animal. Um, but, but I think that will have to happen in order for private practices to participate more in, in these opportunities. Gotcha, I understand.
0: So what other healthcare industry trends are you paying attention to? What do you see coming down the pipeline in the coming years?
1: Yeah, I think um, one of the interesting things is um, there was a lot of items that were conceptually accelerated during COVID. Um, you know, remote care and, and and other items. And I think the industry is still grappling with what does that really mean? What does wearables really mean? How are we going to get reimbursed for it? Um, are we in a position where the patient's actually going to have to increase a little bit more out of pocket in order for us to to garnish yield from, you know, from these activities? Uh, when I look at something like Teladoc as an example that, that financially it doesn't seem to be in a good shape, you know, I sort of question what that's going to look like in the future. Um, our belief is that healthcare is largely local, having a good solid relationship with your caregiver. There's necessary touch points that's required in order to maintain that connection. I do think there's a lot of adjunct technologies that have surfaced during COVID and and after it, but I've never seen healthcare sort of pendulum or swing all the way from the one side to the other side, uh, right? Usually the truth is somewhere in the middle. And so I think application of appropriate uh, technologies, appropriateness of care is, you know, is going to be important. I think the next thing that's closely tied to that is is really who's paying for these advancements. You know, um, we're an industry where there's a lot of people that make money off of the provider and off of the patient um, interaction. And and I think to, to redefine that so that um, we can be a participant in bending the cost curve down a little bit rather than... Sort of just a, a victim of the next thing that's around the corner is is going to be important for our physicians to take strong leadership positions in. Uh, I think it's important.
0: Now, Andre, I wanted to get a, a little bit of insight in what, into what's going on at Illinois uh, you know, born and join this year as well. Obviously, we've seen a, a ton of growth on your part over the last couple of years in terms of some um, independent practice acquisitions. Um, obviously, COVID came along and potentially stunted some of that um, for for many many healthcare practices, but. How, how are you looking at growth over the next, uh, over the next uh, five years?
1: Yeah, um, IBGI, ironically, in COVID, in the COVID year, uh, grew by 56% in terms of uh, physicians. And so it was sort of a strange year because on the one side, we were trying to deal with uh, the challenges of, of COVID and everything that that brought. Um, and then it, it delayed our integration uh, or, or one IBGI activities probably by about a year. But I think um, our board and our leadership has been very specific since 2018, 2019, that um, autonomous practice with uh, physician leadership practice at a very local level is is what they want the infrastructure to continue to support. Um, The biggest investment we had and and shift we had is we uh, converged from five uh, EMR systems and associated practice management systems into one. Uh, We launched Epic in July of 2021. And we uh, finalized the last group onboarding in April of 2022 and that really has opened our eyes to a, a lot more integrated uh, comparative uh, data sets uh, the patient has a better experience since everybody's on the same version of my chart and things like that and using you as an example you know if you got injured you could go to ortho access at different places but you're you know th- there's no more barriers between sharing your information across the whole spectrum of the organization so that that that's been a, Important for us um, to achieve, uh, and and um, I think our biggest focus right now, and and I think a lot of organizations have a sort of a responsive, or a reactive response to what's going on in 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 the hiring market and the healthcare market. But I think our our position is you, you have to be consistent around our values. Um, we had set our values and our mission statement before COVID hit, and I think. Uh, trust, pride, and respect was something that we really focused on under the umbrella of One IBGI, and as we activate it, a lot of the groups that merge with us have 40, 50, 60 years' worth of um, history uh, with them, and I think it would be a mistake to completely vacate that um, legacy strength that they bring to the table. But as we grow, there are elements that we want to permeate throughout the organization uh, so that uh, ultimately the service uh, that we provide to our patients is of the highest um, possible uh, outcome and and matches sort of the surgical and, and the interventional outcome we have and so that's really a focus for us for the remainder of this year and and probably heading into the first part of next year as well
0: uh, yeah really interesting to hear about the, all the growth that going on at the ibgi and of course once those acquisitions get over the line i, I know that the challenges start then with, with the integration process which of course uh, yeah. is doing, the challenge in itself. Yeah um andre so lastly what advice do you have for administrators like yourself looking to build a great culture and sustain success
1: yeah i, I think um there's three things uh, you know that i would say and, and the first is that that you have to on a recurring basis always make reality your friend you know it's it's interesting when we work in an industry you, c- you can get caught up in an in an echo chamber of of saying hey this is what um, you know this is what we are, and what happens around us doesn't really matter and that that's just not the truth and and so having a leadership structure that is open and willing to challenge uh, what we're dealing with is you know is really really important for us and the second thing I would say is is you have to be consistent I think it there's a level of authenticity um, when you're consistent in your position you know um, we've tried to be very empathetic to the needs of, of our patients and also our employees over the last couple of years. There's been a lot of tough decisions around vaccines and, um, you know, application of employee health during that period of time and, and the values that the organization had has, has been really um, put to the test, but being consistent I think is, is very, very important. And then the third thing is, you know, redefining what success looks like. Um, there's an adage that says, um, you know, uh, success is motion, and, and we're certainly not a static organization. And I think the best example for us is we're we're very aggressive and, uh, about a, an ambulatory surgery strategy moving forward. But that success and, and redefinition of success has to be accretive to what we do uh, as an organization. It has to match the skill sets and the desire of uh, where our physicians want to take the organization. And then we have to unify and build around it. I mean, success is an instant. Um, but you have to be willing to always ask that question in order to avoid complacency. And I think those three things uh, together is sort of the, uh, the advice that I would share with uh, fellow administrators in, you know, in the sector.
0: There's some great leadership advice to wrap up our conversation today. André, thank you so much for, for taking the time to speak with us today. I look forward to connecting with you again down the line. Yeah, no worries, Alan. Uh, appreciate the time.